Hello and welcome to the Triage Method podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-hostess, Dr. Nicola Flanagan, this evening. How are you, Nicola? I'm good, thank you. Very good. Paddy is absent this week. He's uh, walking Hadrian's Wall in uh, England, so they're, you know, they're, I don't know, they're walking from east to west or west to east, but uh, himself and Mike Delaney are off trekking, so we hope he enjoys himself. This week, we're going to be talking about women's health screening. We've obviously talked about so many things now we're on episode 21 of the women's health series so we've covered so many topics and i think in, to some extent that can be very overwhelming because you get all this information and then you're not left with any understanding of right what should i actually be worried about you know as an individual when it comes to my health and i think understanding the screening uh the screening needs and what's worth screening for can be helpful for you to understand based on you know where you are in your life what your risk factors are etc so Screening is an interesting topic for a number of reasons, because I think in some cases what people think when they're maybe outside the healthcare world, especially even among a lot of personal trainers, people assume that testing for the maximum amount of diseases, the maximum amount of blood markers, the maximum amount of scans, all those types of things. A lot of people assume that that is a very beneficial practice, that the more testing you do, the more problems you can identify, the more problems you can fix, and therefore the better your health will be. But unfortunately, it's not that simple for a number of reasons. One, healthcare resources are always going to be limited. So if we screened everyone for everything, that would be a waste of resources and it just wouldn't be possible. So from the kind of public health and the doctor's perspective, what you have to think about is what is actually worth screening for? What's a good use of time? If we employ a given diagnostic test or, or screening test, rather, you know, who is it actually going to help? You know, is it worth screening for, you know, let's say 20 to 25 year old males that go to the gym? Or should we be screening for diabetes in that population? Or would it be better to screen in maybe an overweight population in between 40 and 50? The latter might be a better use of resources. So this is one of the issues we, we run into with screening because screening effectively is the use of investigations to assess for the presence of disease or markers of disease in asymptomatic populations. So you're often looking for, you know, diseases that may become a problem around that age or in that demographic when they're not actually presenting with symptoms. So this isn't the same as, you know, for example, someone presenting to their doctor with, you know, they've got their coughing blood and they've got um, shortness of breath and they're a smoker and they've got established signs of lung cancer. You know, the diagnostic process from there isn't screening as such. It's more so diagnosis. Screening would be, the, let's say, using a, a chest X-ray or low dose CT or something like that to identify lung cancer in a population of smokers who have no symptoms, for example, that would be considered screening. And there's two important areas of screening um, or two important um, characteristics of a screening test, I guess you could say, which are sensitivity and specificity. So a test that is very, 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 very sensitive is going to pick up all of the cases of disease, but it's also going to tell a lot of people that aren't diseased that they have some sort of disease. So for example, if we take, let's say, a blood glucose cutoff for diabetes, and we put the threshold that 5.5 millimoles per liter of blood glucose, you're sure you're probably going to catch the vast majority of people that have type 2 diabetes, but you're also going to get a load of pretty healthy people that don't have type 2 diabetes and now put them in that bracket. And then similarly, so you can say that that test isn't very specific. Okay. Um, but then on the other side of things, if you were to take the cutoff and let's say move it to 20 millimoles per liter, now you're actually going to miss a lot of diabetics because there's a lot of people below that threshold that would have diabetes. And, but we're also not going to have all those healthy people in that bracket, but we've gone too far in the other direction now. So there's a kind of a balancing act there between a test that's sensitive and a test, a test that's specific. It's never going to be perfect, but you want to find some sort of middle ground. So a good screening test is going to identify most of the people with the disease but there's still going to be some people that maybe are told that they have the disease or might have the disease that get picked up. And similarly, there's going to be some people that do have the disease that don't get picked up. And that's just the nature of screening. It's never going to be perfect, but balancing that sensitivity and specificity allows us to get close. And you can see some examples of that as we walk through different screening tests moving forward. So Nicola, do you want to discuss kind of 
I suppose in general, or maybe you have something to say on what I've just said. Um, anything to add there? Yeah, I suppose the the main thing is we're we're going to be going through um, lots of different um, you know screening, and um, though women can get, but the the biggest thing to take from this is you know this isn't a list of things to to worry you or to be like I need to go out and get all these tests. Um, you know, it, it's not something to to worry anyone. It's just um, to I suppose raise awareness um, about potential screenings kind of throughout um, a woman's lifespan, um, just so you don't I suppose miss certain mile points. Perfect. And I suppose as a general overview to start with, what are some of those kind of main pillars um, of disease that women should be getting screened for in general? Yeah, so one of the big ones, I suppose we all know about the, you know, cervical cancer awareness over the past um, couple of years has been made um, major headlines. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, in, in, in a lot of cases, um, you know, for, for the women, um, but I suppose what's come out of that is a huge amount of awareness about cervical cancer, um, which has been, you know, fantastic. There's a, you know, a much greater uptake in women um, um, utilizing the screening, um, getting smears, um, and as well, getting the, the HPV vaccine, there's been a, a much greater uptake as, as a result of that. So there were some positives to take from, you know, a largely kind of negative um, situation. Um, so obviously the, the cervical cancer check um, is, is a huge one, you know, breast check that we're all aware of. Um, and then there's other ones that are, that are you know, um, more specific kind of to certain lifespans. So just say... Um, you know, we'd be looking kind of at the pregnant population, you know, what they would be getting screened for either kind of prenatally um, during the pregnancy. Um, and then we'd be looking at kind of postmenopausal um, populations, whether that's osteoporosis risk, um, colorectal cancer, kind of um, et cetera. So those are some of the main ones. And then SDI check for the whole population. And I think you made a, a couple of interesting notes here in relation to screening criteria which kind of I guess add to what I mentioned previously and that for for screening for a screening program to be worthwhile we have to have a, a couple of things in check so number one we want it to be a public health concern of course and in this case let's say cervical cancer or breast cancer it is a public health concern because we can see that you know there it actually does have fairly um or there's a significant portion of the population that have this disease if it was the case that there was some sort of obscure disease or some rare cancer that was only present in 0.0001% of the population, that wouldn't really be worth having a screening program for because it's just so rare. So that's one of the things that's really important to note when it comes to screening. Another thing then is that there should be an early asymptomatic stage for that disease, because if there's not an asymptomatic stage, then we don't really need to screen for it because people will present to their doctor once they get symptoms. And unfortunately for a lot of, a lot of cancers in particular, there is kind of a long asymptomatic um, period. And in some cases, a cancer could be growing for years and years. And it's only at the point when it becomes a lot more serious that people start to have symptoms and then it's more difficult to treat. So you can see there that it's very worthwhile having that screening program in place to pick up people earlier so that their outcomes can be superior. And on that note, then there should, of course, be a suitable screening test. Okay. So we need some sort of screening test that's present. And as we'll discuss in the case of cervical cancer, you can see how that's changed over a number of years. Um, it's not like there's just one test for the screening program and that's just it. There, there are evolutions over time as well. And then of course, we want to ensure that there's a tr treatment available. Okay. So the idea there being that if we can screen in that asymptomatic uh, period and treat early, the person has better outcomes. You know, that's in the absence of a treatment being available, basically just helping, telling people they have the disease earlier. So it's, it's not really a win all around. And then finally, we ideally want that early treatment during that asymptomatic stage to improve the long-term outcome, okay? So if it's a case that treating at one year post onset of disease versus 10 years post onset of disease. If the, if the outcome is the same anyway, then screening in those populations isn't, isn't necessarily um, as important. You know, an, easy, an example of that that comes up over and over again is for example, um, prostate cancer in elderly men. You know, if you've got a 90 year old man, let's say, if you've got a, a population of 90 year old men, I should say, you're gonna have people in that population or a lot of people in that population, if not most, 
that are going to have an elevation in prostate specific antigen, which is one of the things that that is tested for and in, and in a large prostate and some degree of prostate cancer that might be going on. So if you're screening that population, it's not so clear that, you know, by treating it or investigating it, that you're actually helping that man, because it might be the case that he just dies with the cancer and he it's not changing his outcomes. So that has to be clear that it's worth testing for. The test is effective. There's a treatment available and that treatment actually changes long-term outcomes. If we don't have all those things in place, a public, you know, screening program isn't going to be particularly effective. And that is one of the reasons, or they are some of the reasons that, you know, we don't have the HSE or the NHS or the WHO screening for every disease under the sun. It just doesn't make sense. There's a few big ones that people that will be screened for, but not everything, because again, there's limited resources, an infinite number of problems, and that's always going to be the case with healthcare. Brilliant. Yeah. So particularly with with um, um, cervical, the cervical check, it's a really good example of like everything you went through, Gary. So like you're saying, it has, you know, an, an asymptomatic um, um, period and the treatments when when it's caught early are like really, really good outcomes. Um, so I suppose cervical check for anyone that that's not aware of it. It's where, you know, women or anyone with, um, you know, a, a cervix um, can um, go in and go in the, to their doctor um, or a nurse can do it. And basically it's, like a, you know, a small um, brush that's kind of inserted into the vagina um, and then it takes um, samples of cells kind of around the cervix, which is just at the kind of the opening of the uterus or the womb. Um, and then so it's available from women kind of the age of 25 and why 25 is that age is because when it's done in that in a younger age group um, it's it a lot of kind of um, false kind of positive results come up okay because there's a lot of kind of changes up until that age and still after that age from age 25 it still does pick up um, a lot of um, you know atypical cells um, that aren't um, very worrisome that don't exactly mean kind of cervical cancer um, so that's like very common for it to be kind of picked up um, at that stage. So HPV is kind of one of the um, things that they're looking for. And a lot of women will have received kind of HPV vaccine kind of when they were younger. But there's so many different types of HPV. Um, and a lot of us will be exposed to it, you know, kind of at, at some point in our lives. Um, so the vaccine, it only covers kind of a certain amount, kind of the most kind of um, kind of serious kind of um, HPV kind of variants. Um, but we can still pick up HPV even kind of with the vaccine. It just kind of gives us um, a better, um, you know, advantage, essentially. Um, and you want to be kind of getting the vaccine kind of before you're sexually active as well, or else you could already have contracted kind of HPV. Um, but basically, on age 25, it's recommended to kind of get a cervical check every three years up until the age of 29. And then after that, it's every five years. Um, and it, it's, it's really easy to register online. You just go in, you kind of put in your PPS number, your address, um, and then you get a letter sent out. Um, and then on your letter, you're kind of given this number. It's like a cervical check, cervical screening uh, program identifier. And then you go into your GP um, or kind of the, the nurse and you give them that number. Um, and then you'll get a letter out to you um, kind of with the result. And again, it's, you know, if it detects HPV or a, 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 HPV or atypical cells, it's kind of not to panic um, because there's many changes that can occur um, in the cervix and a lot of them kind of will go away on its own. A lot of them don't even need treatment. So it's at that stage, kind of don't panic and they can be completely normal. Um, and then if you need further testing, you'll kind of be, be brought in um, for that. And the most important thing is that you just do get in um, and get checked. It's a really quick and easy check um, to do and that can save your life, I suppose. Yeah, and I think it is a good example because if I recall correctly, pre Previously, it was just a smear test, whereas now it's a smear test followed by, is it PCR for HPV? I think that's the process. They're the steps, isn't yeah. it? So I think that's a good example of where you've got like a stepwise process. And then if, let's say, there's a, a abnormality detected or the presence of HPV, doesn't necessarily mean that the treatment needs to take place at that point in time. But what it does mean is that you can modify subsequent screening intervals. So going from every three years to, I think, is it every year? 
um, that they change it to? Yeah, uh, it can change. And, and even even like, you know, women do get it below the age of 25 as well. It's not that you can't get, you know, a smear until until you're 25. Um, you know, it's all kind of stratified by race. But just at, at the minute, the screening program is kind of 25. But then, you know, if there are kind of um, atypical cells or if it's women that have the kind of um, higher risk HPV variants, they will be brought in kind of more frequently, just kind of, you know, depending. Yeah, so I think that's a really good example of like some of the principles of screening in practice where the tests, the test gives you a signal and then you're modifying the subsequent intervals. So you're not just saying, again, it's not like every woman comes in every year, regardless of age, you're identifying risk factors and then screening appropriately. So there are some of the principles of screening in practice. Um, anything else to say there on, on cervical cancer side of things? No, no, I think, yeah, just kind of, you know, get in, get checked. Like I said, it takes five minutes, you know, um, it's going to be something, you know, it, it seems like a pretty kind of invasive test, but it, it really is kind of just, you know, five minutes and, you know, it's it's done. So just, yeah, get in and do it. Perfect. And what's next on the list? So the next one is STIs or um, sexually transmitted infections. So I suppose this is important for, you know, anyone who's who's sexually active. Um, and I suppose the like, you know, there's a whole list of STIs that we could go through and which I don't think it's particularly necessary. Um, but I, the biggest thing to, to come out of this is, you know, like that we that it used, it used to be that you used to have to go into your GP practice, kind of, you know, ask for, you know, an, an STI check, um, which was a huge kind of barrier to getting checked. Um, so people were really only, you know, um, going and showing up to their GP practices if they were kind of symptomatic or if they found out that, you know, someone um, that they had had sex with has an STI, um, which just meant that there was, a, you know, a huge amount, there is a huge amount of kind of STIs going around in, in the population. Um, but now we, there's actually the HSE and Sanchi care they're doing home STI kits which is absolutely fantastic again you just kind of go you kind of register online and they'll send you out a kit to your house um so it checks for kind of HIV chlamydia um syphilis gonorrhea hep B and hep C um which is just like fantastic so this is important again for you know anyone who's had kind of you know multiple sexual partners or a new sexual partner um or that's aware that someone that they were with has contracted an STI anyone with symptoms um, and the these home kits again like have just kind of you know kind of changed kind of the outlook for you know a lot of people um, it just means that you, there isn't that kind of stigma of kind of going into the GP anymore it's a quick test at home and um, so for women it's kind of a swab um, in the vagina um, and then a blood test as well so just kind of pr prick in the finger um, and then you send it back off it's tested for you um, and then you'll get the results back as well um, I think with the, the HSE they text them to you um, which is which is great you know um, and again, it's just it's important for those populations because left untreated, um, a lot of a lot of like STIs don't have symptoms, unfortunately, which is how a lot of them kind of spread so quickly kind of in the population. Um, but particularly for women, if like, chlamydia or gonorrhea is untreated, you know, it could it lead to like pelvic inflammatory disease, which has knock on issues of a lot of kind of pain um, and then like potential kind of infertility kind of later on. So it is important if you are kind of in, in any, any of those kind of risk factors for getting an STI that you do just kind of log on, get one of those home free tests. Yeah, and I mean, it really does reduce the friction when you can just get it sent out to the home because it, it yeah. even going to the doctor when you are sick is a big enough, <laughs> big enough step for people to take. You know, a lot of you just don't, aren't bothered to go to their GP. You know, yeah. you have to get the time off. You have to get an appointment. You have to, you know, pay the money, blah, blah, blah. Whereas here, you just get your test sent to your home. So um, it is a really nice um, step, especially in the case of STIs where there is stigma associated with it. Um, the next one, I suppose, is is one that it's not necessarily just for for women. And I think it's it's one of the, this is when we talk about blood lipids, which is the next one, like blood lipids is one of the kind of very, very few things where I think most people can benefit from having a look at some point in time, like, right, what where are your blood lipids at? Um, because the thing here that's that's interesting is that when we talk about blood lipids, for example, your LDL cholesterol you're talking about a very long latency period between, you know, the elevation in LDL and the eventual um, cardiovascular event. You know, you could have, 
you know, high LDL from your 20s. And it's really only maybe 50, 60, 70 when you might eventually have an event, depending on how, how high it is, of course. And unfortunately, there's not really any signs up to that point. You know, you don't get symptoms of high LDL. Like in some cases, some fam familial hypercholesterolemia syndromes, you can have, you know, certain signs, but that's, it's, it's quite rare that you're going to have, you know, uh, xanthomas or xanthalasmas, these types of things that present themselves. Most people are going to be asymptomatic. So it is useful to have some sort of baseline test when you're young, male or female, doesn't matter, just to get an idea of where your LDL is at. And I think this is really useful for, I guess our listeners, you know, who are generally fit and healthy people are generally at least some degree of they're, they're quite health conscious. You can be eating a perfectly healthy diet. And if you have familial hypercholesterolemia in your family, for example, you're still at risk, you know, and you can do what you want with your diet and it just might not be enough. So it is really worth screening in this case and potentially even treating. So again, there's still there's still some degree of, of risk stratification here, which is important. So um, if you have, let's say, uh, a normal test, first and foremost, most a lot of people might need to test that again for a very long period of time. But if you've got a high risk of cardiovascular disease, so for example, if you're, um, if you're older already, if you've got hypertension, high blood pressure associated with that, you've got diabetes, uh, you've smoked, you smoked or currently smoke, your obese, sedentary lifestyle, family history of early heart disease. So for example, maybe you're, you're like, oh, you know, I think my dad had a heart attack at 40 and yeah, my granny died when she was very young of a heart attack. These types of things might lead you to be a bit more suspicious or a bit more regular with your testing um, or potentially your doctor might even decide to lower the threshold at which they're a bit more concerned. Um, and that's an example of, I guess, the dynamic nature of screening where someone might say, right, we're going to test at a given period of time, but given all the risk factors, we're actually going to bring the threshold at which we consider it to be an issue a little bit lower. Um, and that's something that's always evolving in, in blood lipids in particular, because what we know now is that the lower your LDL is and the longer it's low for, the better your outcomes are going to be in terms of low risk of cardiovascular disease. So there's the time and the magnitude that's important there. Um, and then the for women in particular, those in higher risk, um, should have uh, lipid screening again at age 30 to 35 or so. So if you're identified to be in high risk based on what we've discussed previously, then again, at about 30 to 35. So initially as a young adult and then 30 to 35. Um, if you're lower risk, you, you, you can wait till your 40s, recommended around the age of 45 if you don't have those risk factors. Um, but it really does kind of depend, you know, the, the this is an area that's always evolving in terms of the, the levels, as I said what was previously considered to be a normal level of LDL cholesterol. It's now a little bit more like, okay, it's normal, but lower is still better. So I think if you listen to some of our previous episodes on um, cholesterol and heart disease and those types of things, that's kind of our message is that lower for longer is generally going to be better. And uh, especially if you're in those higher risk categories, medical management might be required, but at the very least dietary modification is going to be required. And that brings us on to the topic of pregnancy. Now, before we get into pregnancy, it is worth noting that a lot of this is going to be looked after for you. Okay, so if you happen to be pregnant at the moment, you just found out it's such an overwhelming time already, you know, and you end up one of the things that a lot of women report when they get pregnant is they're getting advice from all directions, from everyone that was ever pregnant in their lives, and it's very overwhelming. So thankfully, you generally don't have to think and manage all these screening tests or considerations yourself. Your doctor's generally going to look after it. Um, so Nicola, do you want to discuss some of the considerations for screening during pregnancy, high risk, low risk, etc.? Yeah, definitely. And like you said, the, the biggest thing there is, you know, like all of this is going to be taken care for taken care of for you, you know, so it's not to get kind of too caught up. So the purpose of this is just, you know, to kind of raise awareness and um, just, yeah, kind of let people know what, what might be involved, um, you know, if and when, you know, they, they become pregnant. Um, so um, two kind of main kind of conditions that that women um, might get um, during pregnancy um, are gestational diabetes um, and preeclampsia. So gestational diabetes is basically when a woman 
um, can with no history of diabetes can kind of develop it um, during pregnancy. And then once they have the baby, um, that kind of goes, goes back to normal again. Um, so again, this isn't, in, in some countries, this is a routine screening kind of across the board. It's kind of usually done kind of second trimester, um, 24, 28 weeks. Um, in Ireland, it's not routine screening. So they'll just identify kind of people that are kind of at high risk um, for gestational diabetes. Um, so these risks are, you know, people that have, you know, previous history of gestational diabetes, maybe in their last pregnancy or before that, um, if they've previously given birth to kind of a, a big baby, you know, kind of over 4.5 kilos, um, if they have a high BMI themselves, um, kind of mothers over 40 um, might get screened, um, someone with a family history of diabetes, um, someone with PCOS. Um, or someone that has kind of been on long-term steroids. So they're people that kind of will be screened um, in, in that age. Again, the, the, the screening first is kind of a really um, easy test. It's like an, called an oral glucose tolerance test. And again, it'll be done in the hospital. You'll be fasting for 12 hours beforehand. They'll give you kind of a sugary drink and then they'll test your, your um, you know, your blood sugars again, test your blood again, kind of, um, you know, two kind of four hours afterwards. Um, so again, quick kind of, you know, easy test, but again, nothing you need to worry about um, unless you're in kind of one of those higher risk groups. And again, it, it'll be taken care of for you. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that, Gary. Yeah, no, not too much to add to that. I suppose like just one of the things to, one of the things to know is what that, like you said, it's not necessarily like gestational diabetes is not the same as having a diagnosis as, you know, type two diabetes mellitus, like a lot. I think the vast majority, not in all cases, but the vast majority of women with gestational diabetes do regain normal blood glucose control afterwards. Um, it is a risk factor um, or potentially puts you at risk of developing um, overt type two diabetes in the future. Um, but most women do revert. Uh, to normal uh, glucose control afterwards. So if if it does happen that you've had, um, if you do develop, let's say, gestation diabetes in the current pregnancy, that again is something that will modify subsequent screening in subsequent pregnancies. Um, again, demonstrating the dynamic nature um, of screening there. Um, so yeah, that's the the GDM. Perfect. Um, and then the next one then is is preeclampsia. So this one um, might not be kind of as well known um, by women who kind of, you know, wouldn't be aware. Um, so this is typically, you know, um, when a woman kind of over 20 weeks kind of goes in to one of their antenatal visits um, and will have kind of a high blood pressure. So usually kind of, you know, 160 um, kind of systolic. Um, and so one, when they have that, it's kind of retested. And if it's still at that kind of, you know, higher level, um, they'll, they'll check their urine as well. And if there's kind of protein in their urine, um, it's kind of signaling that they might have something called um, preeclampsia, um, which again, if, if it's left untreated, it can, you know, kind of have kind of serious implications for kind of both kind of mother and baby. But again, it's one of those things that, you know, every visit that you go for in antenatally, you know, your blood pressure is going to be checked. You're going to, you know, um, do a urine sample um so it again it, it there's there's lots of kind of checkpoints for this to be picked up um just like gestational diabetes so not something to to worry about there are some um higher risk um people that more at more risk of developing it really so that that's people that you know haven't it's their first pregnancy um people that might have had preeclampsia in a previous pregnancy they're more likely to get it again some of the family history um or if with the history of you know um chronic high blood pressure if they've renal disease um if they have some other kind of vascular disease diabetes um and then obesity is another risk factor as well um but these people again they'll have kind of their their baseline blood pressure kind of from their you know first antenatal visit um and then they'll have what they'll do is kind of have more kind of accurate um kind of estimation of the gestational kind of age of of the baby and that's because um preeclampsia can put you at high risk um, of kind of having kind of you know a smaller um baby essentially um so they'll do that and then they'll check kind of the the baseline kind of baseline bloods um that again kind of later on kind of for someone with preeclampsia and um, we'll just kind of test if, if it if it increases in in severity throughout the pregnancy right and then like obviously there are some of the there's some of the specific specific um, conditions you might be concerned about, but there is kind of a, a general standard panel that, you know, if you are pregnant 
and you go and see your doctor and they're going to do some blood tests. Some of the standard things that they'll generally test for would be your rhesus status, which is basically a marker in the blood that can be incompatible between you and baby. And that, you know, modifies safety of, of future pregnancies, but there's generally a, a treatment that is um, administered if there's incompatibility detected. So um, that again is something that they're looking out for and will potentially um, treat for then afterwards. Uh, hemoglobin iron studies as well is something that comes up. Um, generally, like anemia is more common in pregnancy. We mentioned that previously. So baseline hemoglobin is going to be important, especially um, you know if you're looking, let's say, if you've got a, another um, bleeding disease, that's going to be important. Um, thrombophilias, that type of thing, or hemophilias. Uh, but that's generally not that's generally something you'd probably be aware of already. Uh, but if you're going to have a cesarean section, for example, if you've already got a anemia and you're going to have more blood loss, again, that's something that you want to identify early on. So hemoglobin and iron studies, then rubella and varicella, um, unless there's previous vaccination or exposure, uh, urine dipstick and culture. So again, it's just like a urine sample that's going to be taken, looking for things like, for example, proteinuria. Is there protein um, in your urine, uh, as mentioned by Nicola previously in relation to preeclampsia, and then asymptomatic bacteriuria. So um, if you've got bacteria in your urine and the absence of symptoms, again, that's something you can be testing for there. HIV, syphilis, hep B, hep C, chlamydia, and then the ongoing process of cervical check. Um, so all those things are going to be kind of part of your standard panel that that will be looked for, along with your normal history and examination that would be taken care of by your doctor during your pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And then there's some kind of selective screening that you can do that won't be um, offered kind of for, for everyone. It'll be based on kind of symptoms or if there's a high risk of you kind of having any of these. Um, so kind of thyroid function is one. Again, it, it's not um, it's not it's something that's really kind of highly debated and um, whether all women should have their, their thyroid function checked um, during pregnancy, but it's, it's not something that's um, recommended or, or done here in Ireland um, or in a lot of countries, to be honest. Um, it can be kind of, you know, really um, important for someone who's, you know, trying to conceive, um, particularly if they've been trying to conceive kind of without, you know, any luck. Um, there's kind of high rates of kind of subclinical um, hypothyroidism um, that, again, can be a fertility issue. And once kind of women are kind of treated for that, um, you know, that we can see like an improvement in, you know, like um, spontaneous pregnancies occurring. Um, so that is kind of one thing that is um, important that a lot of people don't know about. Um, but yeah, thyroid function um, and um, people can be screened for type two diabetes. And then there's a whole load of those infectious diseases that again, it will be dependent if you're kind of high risk at getting them. Um, so like hep A kind of measles, um, you know, again, if you're in like a high risk area, if there's a high likelihood of exposure to any of these, it's not just going to be um, routinely offered to everyone um, like gonorrhea, um, you know, CMV, HSV, like it, it, it all, they all just kind of, they'll all be screened for really kind of by your doctor, whether this is something that you need or not. Yeah, like there, there's a lot of additional specialized testing. Um, but again, you don't need to think about this stuff. Thankfully, you don't need to know all the different diseases. Um, and depending on your uh, demographics, your your background, sexual history, etc., all that's going to modify what your doctor's testing for. So thankfully, you don't have to worry about all that. Now, that takes us from pregnancy. Or is there anything else you wanted to add to pregnancy screening before we go forward? Yeah, I think that was that that covered the, the majority of it. Perfect. Um, obviously, I suppose we should say is like there are other, I guess, what you could put in the, the category of screening, for example, for your baby, like your 12 week scan and, and growth scans and those types of things. But that's a little bit separate. Again, all that's looked after by your doctor. You don't have to go ask them for it. So moving on from that, then would be uh, breast cancer screening. Uh, this, again, is probably one of the higher profile I guess, awareness campaigns in the last couple of decades would be breast cancer. Um, you know, it's not very often that people would know the names of genes that put you at risk of disease, but a lot of people are actually aware of uh, BRCA, the BRCA gene, or they might just say the breast cancer gene because of things like screening or public awareness campaigns. So like breast cancer, obviously, is one of the more common cancers. And as a result, screening tends to be effective because it meets all those criteria that we mentioned previously. Um, so what are some of the kind of 
what are the main kind of pillars of screening in breast cancer in terms of, I suppose, first, just the screening tests? Like, what is that process? Yeah, so I suppose women are kind of, you know, stratified in, into a few different groups. So whether there's women who are of like, you know, an average risk of breast cancer. So the average risk um, for women is like 15% um, of women will um, develop breast, breast cancer at some stage in their life. Um, so that, you know, accounts for kind of 15%. Um, and then there's more kind of people that have kind of like a more of a... Um, what we say like a moderate risk where there's a family history um, of breast cancer um, and high risk screening. So people that, you know, might have kind of one of those genes that, that you that you mentioned. There's other genes that are that are responsible and that can be involved as well. So there, people are kind of stratified in, in, in those kind of risks. So generally the people that are an, have an average risk, at least that's 15 percent, the moderate risk then the family history kind of 15 to 20 percent, they're kind of, you know, really kind of lumped into kind of the, the same kind of um standard um you know kind of you know the breast check ireland that 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 we that we all kind of know about um so breast check ireland it's a free mammogram you know every two years for kind of women um between the age of 50 and 69 um but so that that catches like a huge amount of cases now it does miss about 20 percent okay um but so the thing is, we know that there's been like huge kind of, um, you know, breast check, like, you know, campaigns over the years. So we know that, you know, the, this just doesn't start at the age of 50. It's not something that we just need to start at that age and um, that like even going back, like there's still things that we can do, um, you know, kind of like at, at my age, um, kind of, you know, 40 kind of and under and that the, the incidence of breast cancer kind of rises with age. And that's why that kind of, you know, age 50 um, group has been identified as the ones that kind of re receive the kind of mammograms kind of before that. Um, the, the breast tissue is a lot kind of different and there's a much higher rates of kind of false positives again. So it's only that age that really kind of catches kind of the majority of like actual positive cases. Um, but kind of before then, and again, this is like, you know, country dependent, but generally under the age of 40, there's kind of no real kind of guidelines for screening. You know, the average risk of kind of developing um, breast cancer is is very low. Um, but as we know, there's, you know, kind of huge campaigns out there. The most kind of widely known is kind of feel it on the first. So that's kind of people advocating kind of, you know, checking your own breasts, kind of being aware of kind of, you know, what's normal, what's not. Um, and again, there, there's like really good guidelines online of like, you know, how to check your breasts as well. Um, like I do recommend kind of going online, um, even like, you know, the um like the, the breast cancer groups have like really, really good kind of detailed guidelines of things that you can do yourself. And I suppose the purpose of these is, is more kind of raising awareness again of kind of, you know, kind of what's normal, what's not. And it's not something to panic um, if you are checking and you you do feel a lump, you know, our, like our breasts change so much, even over the month kind of to do with the menstrual cycle. A lot of women will have just kind of, you know, like physiological cysts that are kind of really benign um, and they account Account for a lot of the cases, probably the majority of the cases that people go and see their GP about um, and that are kind of nothing to worry about. Like if, if you are kind of, you know, one of those people, you will go into the GP, they'll do like a clinical breast exam um, and then they'll refer you on to like, you know, um, like a triple assessment clinic, um, you know, like a, a rapid clinic, you know, if necessary to kind of get that further checked, if this kind of needs a biopsy, if it needs kind of any imaging. Um, but a lot of times, you know, it, it is something that is just kind of a physiological cyst um but it is important to kind of know what's normal um and, and what's not and how to to check your rests as well mm -hmm. so i suppose overall there what you've got are a few different like again levels of stratification of like how invasive the screening is going to be so is it just yourself first and foremost like doing a self breast check then you can have a clinical breast exam from someone that is trained and looking for you know very specific findings then you can have again another level up, which would be your mammogram and then a biopsy, which is obviously a bit more invasive looking for specific cellular changes. Um, I think that's the that's all the tests really that would be the kind of first line for breast cancer. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, obviously, then if you've got um, if you're in the, the higher risk categories, then where 
you know, for example, there's a, a strong uh, family history, you know, it's uh, hereditary in the case of BRCA, for example. Um, if you're in those categories, it's going to be a little bit different in terms of when you're going to be screened. It makes more sense in those cases to screen younger rather than screening older. Um, but uh, yeah, that again just goes along with the previous the previous uh, points you mentioned. Um, yeah. So I suppose with with, with the bracket ones, because it's something that that I suppose gets asked a lot is you know kind of why isn't everyone you know screened for for bracket one, bracket two, um, and a lot of women you know want want to get screened for it again just because it, it, there's been so much kind of awareness about it, um, but there are kind of um like criteria for getting tested, um for bracket one, bracket two, um and other kind of you know um hereditary genes that might be responsible for kind of breast and ovarian cancer. Um, you know, it's it's not necessary to to test the whole population. Like I said, there just hasn't been um, value yet in, in, in doing that. Um, but um, some the criteria is, you know, uh, breast cancer kind of under the age of 45. They'll typically be screened for, you know, um, like genetic variants. Um, you know, if someone's kind of age between kind of 46 and 50, if there is an uncertain kind of family history um, of kind of primary breast cancers or if there's one close blood relative um, with breast, ovarian and, you know, pancreatic prostate cancer diagnosed at any age or um, anyone that's diagnosed with kind of triple negative breast cancer as well. Um, and then again, like if, if someone's kind of found to have the gene, um, it's it's not that they're um, going to develop um, breast or ovarian cancer. Um, it is so kind of 6% of women kind of with BRCA1, BRCA2 will develop breast cancer, 20% ovarian. Um, but if you are found to kind of have one of those genes, again, you'll be screened, you'll be brought to kind of more of a high risk clinic. Um, you'll be offered kind of risk reduction treatment. Um, and then again, you'll be, you'll be closely um, serve, um, like there'll be close surveillance on you as well with regards to them. And that brings us to diabetes. So diabetes, like for people that aren't aware, you're generally looking for things like, for example, elevations in uh, blood glucose. That can be fasting blood glucose. It can be um, after an oral glucose tolerance test where, you know, as Nicola mentioned previously in relation to gestational diabetes, you're basically given a glucose challenge of a fixed amount of glucose and then looking for um, the uh, blood glucose response afterwards, uh, generally at two hours, sometimes it'll be one and two hours, uh, but you're looking for the response. How high does the blood glucose go? And then over time as well, it can be tested in terms of your HbA1c, how glycated your hemoglobin is. Basically what that means is it gives you a snapshot over the course of about three months of what your average blood glucose levels have been. So there are the different types of things that uh, can be uh, assessed for and generally what 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 that's getting at there with diabetes is that there is altered blood glucose control over time it's kind of the the other side of insulin resistance so you're becoming more insulin resistant and then that's more um profound in the case of type 2 diabetes where eventually you can get um, pancreatic uh, beta cell insufficiency where you're not producing enough insulin the blood glucose is chronically elevated and that puts you at risk of many different diseases down the line, which again is why it's worth screening for because someone has type 2 diabetes, it's putting them at an elevated risk of things like, um, you know, nerve damage, artery damage, heart disease, and many other conditions along with that. And again, it's not just about saying, are we testing um, just to tell people they have diabetes? It's also because there are effective treatments, whether they be you know, diet and lifestyle modifications or uh, medications such as metformin, for example. So there are interventions that can then modify the risk of um, that person having poorer outcomes long term. So that, again, is, is why we would screen for type 2 diabetes. Brilliant. Um, and then the, the next one then is the colorectal cancer screening. Um, so the bowel screen in Ireland is absolutely brilliant, and it's, it's probably... The, well, it definitely is kind of one of the lesser known um, screening programs, um, but it's offered um, to people, you know, men, women kind of age 60 to 69 in Ireland. And again, it's really simple to sign up. Kind of you go online, you'll be offered an appointment. Um, you're given kind of a, a sachet kind of to drink kind of the, the night before that kind of essentially kind of clears out the bowels. Um, you head into hospital the next day um, and then you're kind of given um, a scope to again to check for any lesions. Um, 
or kind of any kind of, um, you know, any lesions, again, that could potentially be cancerous and that might be lurking there, but you might be, you know, asymptomatic from, um, again, it's, it's a fantastic screening program and it does kind of pick up um, you know, cases that kind of might have been um, lying kind of dormant there. It is, it's, you know, a relatively kind of, you know, an invasive, well, it's invasive enough, but, you know, um, in terms of, of um, you know, how invasive it could be, it, it, like it's just, it's a very good screening program. Um, and that's just for kind of the general population. Again, you can have, you know, um, a scope kind of before that age, um, particularly for the higher risk populations so that might be someone that might have a genetic syndrome that that's caused um, colorectal cancer, people with, uh, you know, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's or also of colitis, and um, they're at a higher risk um, of developing colorectal cancer. So they might be screened earlier, um, but they are screened earlier. Um, and then people kind of, um, you know, depending on their lifestyle. So to do a kind of diet, smoking, alcohol, sedentary lifestyle, um, and then, um, yeah, just the diet is kind of the main one, obesity. And just to circle back there quickly, because I never actually mentioned it in relation to diabetes, um, sorry to cut off your colorectal cancer discussion, uh, generally testing, <laughs> testing, for diabetes, <laughs> testing for diabetes generally um, commences around the age of 45. Okay, but there are a number of things that might lead to testing occurring earlier. So, for example, if you're overweight um, or obese, that can be an indication for um, testing earlier. And also, you know, a few other risk factors like first your relative with diabetes, history of cardiovascular disease, et cetera, that might lead to um, earlier testing. Um, and also if you have established uh, pre-diabetes, so you'd be tested yearly then for um, whether or not you've progressed on to full type two diabetes. Um, similarly, if you've had a history of gestational diabetes, like we mentioned in the pregnancy discussion, that would warrant testing then um, repeated every three years, uh, lifelong effectively, because it is a risk factor for developing, uh, diabetes. Um, so once you're kind of 45 years of age, if testing is normal, excuse me, it's going to be repeated at a, you know, minimum of three year intervals and, you know, more frequently than if there's a higher baseline risk or an abnormality in the results found. So that just gives you an idea because I think it's important to note that like, you don't need, if you're 20, 25, 30, you don't need to just go testing yourself for type 2 diabetes if you don't have risk. We see this all the time in the fitness space where people are constantly monitoring their blood glucose and they'll identify, you know, oh, this food sent my blood glucose to, I don't know, eight or nine after a meal. Like, oh my God, am I insulin resistant? Am I diabetic? It just causes unnecessary stress. You know, people not eating fruit because it increased their blood glucose and this type of thing. Um, so that's kind of one of the risks of, of over screening um, in this case. So uh, yeah, that's just an important note there because it comes up all the time in the fitness space. Um, but yeah, I think you mentioned everything I wanted to, that we wanted to get through in terms of um, bowel screening. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's the colorectal cancer, that's diabetes. And then the final thing is, bone density so this comes up all the time um with you know women in particular considerations related to osteoporosis osteopenia etc so is it the case that everyone should be getting an adexa or, or where are we at with this what what's who should be screened for for bone density issues yeah so i think throughout this series i think i've gone on about osteoporosis um in in women so much um but talking about it again i suppose um so yeah the we all kind of know about the the, the dexa scans so that's kind of checking your kind of bone mineral density so women over the age of 65 kind of and without any other risk um they should um all kind of receive a desk a dexa scan um to check the bone mineral density and then um following on from that so kind of a younger age so younger kind of postmenopausal women um kind of um age kind of 50 to 69 kind of with um risk factors and um, they should have a dexa scan um so anyone kind of um that's had kind of you know an unusual kind of fracture un under that age um or anyone with a certain conditions whether that's kind of rheumatoid arthritis um whether they're taking um you know steroids um that might kind of decrease kind of their their bone mineral density um that 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 sort of thing but again it'll be um like risk stratified but something that your your doctor your gp and um, will go through and and put you um refer you for one and and thankfully this like our 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 primary you know podcast demographic is like 
25 to 35 most of our listeners so most of you probably don't have to to worry about that um but in some cases it, it can be you know of concern for some women we for example we talked about um amenorrhea previously in, in previous episodes and you know if you've been amenorrheic for a long period of time especially if you're you know in that hypothalamic um amenorrhea spectrum maybe over dieting chronic exercise etc you can run into some bone density problems in those cases um so again it's not i'm not saying it's irrelevant for younger populations it can certainly be relevant but generally the kind of high yield screening is going to take place in, in slightly older populations so um they're all the major conditions that we've gone through i think in terms of screening in women now it is a lot there's a lot of different things that we've discussed and i think one of the end points one of the points that we have kind of repeated over and over is that a lot of it is looked looked after by your doctor especially when we talk about pregnancy um and i think one of the important things to do here is not to put all of the responsibility for screening like in your own hands and saying like right what do i need to test for what tests do i need like speak to your gp about this say look right i'm i'm 30 years old now you know i've I've had one kid or whatever. I'm really starting to become a bit more health conscious. I'm just wondering what testing should I have done to benefit my health right now? Or when should I be thinking about getting testing for this or that? And that's generally the best way of trying to at least organize it in your own mind. Because if you go online and you read about different testing, like it can be very overwhelming, especially if you follow a lot of people, I think in the health and fitness space, because generally we can be very neurotic sometimes, you know, you'll have totally healthy people testing for every hormone and vitamin under the sun to see if there's any problems. And often they just, it just leads to just unnecessary worry. You generally don't need to do that. And that's why we wanted to put together this episode where we just give you the high yield items. You can at least get some exposure to that. And then you can discuss it with your own doctor as to what's most appropriate for you right now, given your current state of health, family history, circumstances, et cetera. Is there anything you'd like to cover before we finish up? No, I think that that like there's there's loads more that you can go through there, but I think For those sure. are all kind of you know the the main the main ones. Perfect. Um. So that that kind of concludes this episode, and in the next episode, what we'll be doing is trying to basically close off the women's series and summarize the most important things to be aware of as a woman that is you know interested in in fitness, but also just generally health conscious you know what are the things that you should be doing what are the things that should be screened for you know we'll we'll very quickly summarize these recommendations because we did a full episode on this um and just give you an overall idea of women's health and fitness so with that said um we do have a more personalized service too we do coaching so if you'd like to you know take your own goals to the next level you know obviously we don't offer health screening but we can offer uh, training and nutrition recommendations lifestyle recommendations etc to improve your health we like to think um also improve your fitness and those types of things so if you'd like to work with us to improve your health performance body composition etc we have a team of very competent coaches who can help you on that journey we also put out a ton of free information you can subscribe to our newsletter can follow us on social media triage method and all of our individual pages we've got a lot of free content there and then what you can also do is um what was i going to say uh join the coaches corner so we have an educational platform at the moment it will be evolving into something very different very soon but at the moment you can subscribe there get a lot of uh, an access to a ton of content there it's relatively cheap service um so if you'd like to take a look at that you can do so and then if you like the podcast you enjoy what we're putting out we always appreciate a review or rating if your app allows for that. And also if you share it on, you know, your Instagram story, WhatsApp group with friends, privately with a friend that you think would benefit from the podcast, it, or it, it helps us get the word out there and we really do appreciate it. So that's it for me. Thanks very much for listening, guys. And we'll see you in the next episode.